what's the business side of the field that you're going into and how do you make sure that you can get that to support yourself? Because it turns out nobody's going to knock on your door and just hand you a job in the thing you just got a degree in. And even though I knew that that was the case, I still totally expected that when I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Was College Worth It podcast. I'm your host, Amir, a three-time college dropout turned graduate. On this podcast, I explore people's decision to go or not to go to college. I also explore the impact it's had on their lives and their careers. My number one goal here is to unpack their stories and their lessons learned to help you make an informed decision about your education and your career path. It's important to note that the opinions I express here are that of my own and only my own. They are not of the employer that I might have at the time that you're watching this recording. Please subscribe so I can maybe not say that one day. Today's episode is with Emily Gindelsparger. Emily is the best-selling author of Please Make Me Love Me, a memoir covering a chaotic time in her life where she learns to love herself, and that's through exploring open relationships and eventually coming out as queer. Emily is also a ghostwriter and head book coach at Scribe Media. This is where she helps authors tackle the emotional journey of writing. She taps into their experience and wisdom and helps share it with the world. Scribe is a company that has revolutionized the publishing industry with famous book launches for authors such as Tiffany Haddish and David Goggins. Emily is also a former high school English teacher. She got her degree in fiction writing from Columbia College in Chicago. We talk about a range of topics in this episode, so please use the chapter markers and choose your own adventure. Without further ado, here is best-selling author, Emily Gindelsparger. Uh, thank you so much for being here today, and thank you so much for writing this. Please make me love me. Uh, it's uh, an incredible book, and ignore the notes that I, like my chaotic oh, notes. Oh no, the notes the are book. what I'm focusing on. It's so oh, really? beautiful okay. to see that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm yeah. So it's uh, a, <laughs> um, I should really get a highlighter, but, uh, I just went crazy with the notes. Um, I know you have your hesitations about actually writing this, but I'm so glad that you put this out in the world. My favorite part of this book is how you're so honest about the tactics you use to avoid feeling emotions. I actually had to stop reading it before bed because I would read it and go, oh, no, like I do that all the time. Oh, and then I would like start ruminating. I'm like, where else do I do this in my life? Um, mm -hmm. So thank you. Also, I blame you for some sleepless nights. Um, but it, it did help me realize how I was happy to help. Yeah, of course. <laughs> It, it helped me realize how I was doing similar things in my life as well. So thank you again for putting this out in the world. Um, what made you yeah, want to write this book? Thank you. Uh, you know, it's funny, especially because we're talking about in the context of college and how college sort of prepared us for the rest of our lives or, or didn't. Um, I have a degree in fiction writing originally, and before starting this book, I was working on a novel, and I had written several different drafts of it, um, and and then abandoned that novel kind of midway when this book idea came through. And 
It was mostly like a self-preservation, self-therapy thing. I had just gone through a really confusing part of my life. I was in turmoil with my relationships and I was trying to figure it all out. And I was searching everywhere for other stories that would help me empathize with, not empathize with myself, help me build more compassion with myself. And so I was reading like Glennon Doyle's Love Warrior and Augustine Burroughs' memoirs. Like I was trying to find any tragic story of somebody making a mess of relationships in their lives and how they rebuilt that. And even though all those stories are really amazing, they didn't reflect what I was going through. And so I just thought maybe I can be of service to myself and maybe I can be of service to other people if I really sit down and try to write this story. Awesome. Yeah. Are you planning on writing that novel eventually or is it just back on the back oh, burner yeah. put away? It's on the back burner for sure. I'm actually, I'm working on a second memoir now. Um, I, I think there's there's something about the memoir writing process specifically that is just incredibly fulfilling to me. The The amount of self-discovery that happens in it is really amazing. And so the fiction novel really is more like for fun and escape, but I'm, I'm still brainstorming on it and restructuring it and toying with it in my mind all the time. Uh, just not dedicating the work to seeing that through just yet. Absolutely. It, it is very therapeutic to go through that writing process. And like, how cool is this going to be? For, well, I, you've talked about how it's opened up discussions with family members, but I wish I had a book or like a memoir from family members that kind of went into the detail of what their life was like, as opposed to just being this like vanilla mystery of what's going on. So it's, Super cool. Um, tell me about Radio K. Who is he? And how did he get his name? Yeah. Uh, it's funny because he's a he in my mind too. Even though, I guess I, I call him a he in the book. It, but it is one of those, you know, pernicious voices that just runs rampant through your mind. Uh, for me, he's the voice of anxiety and cynicism and self-deprecation. And I, it's funny, I'd come up with that format of like um, making the inner voice explicit in previous fiction short stories that I had worked on. And, and then it just finally suddenly occurred to me to do that in my memoir too. Um, but I stole the name specifically from Ann Patchett, who wrote about, or I think she said in an interview, something about Radio K-Fuck being the radio station that you can't turn off in your mind that just is like blaring bad news all day long, all day long. Um, and there was something really liberating about thinking of it as an externalized voice or an externalized being even in that, like, I realized, oh, this isn't necessarily something I can control. It's something I can choose to listen to or not. But the fact that these awful thoughts are coming up in my mind and telling me how worthless I am or how ashamed I should be. That's actually like, that's, that's the part that's automatic. That's the part that's patterned in me. And so it's not my fault that that's happening. That's and thinking of it as a separate entity really helped me disidentify with 
oh, this is me saying this to myself, right? And therefore it must be true. It made it easier when it was somebody else and then I could choose not to listen. It was super cool to see it, uh, even in your, how you integrated it into your writing style and how it was, anytime Radio K would speak up, he'd be in italics. And I could see it on like the second page, like, uh oh, okay, Radio K is gonna be speaking up. What's, what's, you gonna, what's he gonna say? And it builds up a lot of anticipation because you can see it out of the corner of your eye. So that was super cool. Um, oh, that is so fun. I never thought of that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> What works better for you, pushing away the voice of Radio OK or letting it have letting him have it say? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question because I think I've gone through different uh, phases of evolution with how I deal with that voice. You know, yeah. in the early stages, in the early stages, it was much more pushing him away. Um, and that was more of a self-defense technique. It was like, finally, when I realized that that voice was tearing me down and that that voice was not getting me results in my life, yeah. like that voice was never helping me move forward with something. He was only ever keeping me stuck. And when I finally realized that my first impulse was just, okay, well then I'm not going to listen to you. And then my second impulse was what else am I going to listen to then? Like this voice is so loud in my head and so persistent and he's just jammering away all the time. Is there anything else inside of me that can take up the space that that voice is currently taking up? And so I started thinking about like, let's just toy with what if we believed the opposite of what Radio K says? You know, like if he thinks I'm worth worthless, is there some part in me that thinks I am worthy and can I tap into that? And that's actually where the voice of inner wisdom that I also write about in the book, like that's where that started to come through was really just practicing like what is the opposite of what Radio K is saying and can I believe it? And I, I do a lot of meditation, so I started devoting more and more time to making space to listen to that inner wisdom voice. And what's happened now over time is that I have a relationship with both of those voices in my head. That when Radio K speaks up, I actually use the content of whatever he's saying to hmm. dig deeper with like, what is going on with me that this is the thing that's coming to my mind right now. And so he's sort of like the... um like the scout. <laughs> he's, he's sort of like the first thing that shows me that there's a problem somewhere. And instead of mm -hmm. listening to him, I listen to the direction that he's pointing me. So if he tells me if I'm worthless, I know that, okay, there's a hole in my self-worth right now. And if I want that to be whole, how do I start caring for myself and fixing that? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And you can see it as you progress through the book is I think you call it the gentle inner voice just starts having more of a say uh, as you kind of go through your own journey. What's so amazing to me about the actual writing process of those two voices is that I did not intentionally manipulate like when Radio K is showing up and when that inner voice shows up. I just wrote what was happening 
And yet the pattern you can see in the book over time is there's a whole lot of radio K in the beginning. And then just very, 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 very slowly, he starts to fade out. And then there's yeah. just more and more of the inner wisdom voice. And, um, again, that wasn't like an intentional craft piece. It's just the way that it was, but it's, it's been really beautiful to see that reflection on the page. Yeah. It, it was super cool to see the, the ratio really shift as you got to the end of the book. Um, I actually have three quotes here from your book uh, to set up the next question. Quote number one, I equated taking time for myself with taking care of tasks, and these are not the same thing. Quote number two, I'm constantly trying to strategize my feelings instead of just feeling them. <laughs> Quote number three, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is why I had to stop reading it at night. This was the, oh no, I do that part. Um, I started going to yoga every day because it was easier to feel my body than my emotions. And I love how you distinguish emotions as something completely separate here. And there's a clear theme here and where you're constantly trying to distract yourself from actually feeling your emotions. What have you learned about the difficulty of just feeling feelings? And what do you do today to help with it? Oh, man. Yeah, it's still difficult. You know, I have so many more skills now. Um, but I still have to put the skills into practice. <laughs> and, and that's the hard part. It's like anytime that I'm feeling a tough emotion, it's not like I suddenly am more welcoming of that emotion or that I enjoy going through it. It's just that I understand the necessity of sitting with it and taking time with it. And so I put in the work to feel it. And so for me, I often don't recognize that I need to do that until something has happened where I haven't been paying attention to my emotions. Like I'll be stewing in anger for a week without realizing that I'm angry and then blow up about something really dumb, you know, that's inconsequential. And then I'll realize like, oh, okay, I've been sitting on a, a landmine on accident here. Um, and so part of it is really interestingly, part of it has been embracing my sensitivity more. Mm -hmm. Like I've often thought of myself as being a really deeply sensitive person. I feel like I am often more, um, I don't know, reactive or just uh, that I'm, a, I'm often affected more than I see other people being affected out in the world, which probably is not even true. It's just my <laughs> perception of myself. Right. But the more sensitive I let myself be, the more likely I am to catch the first signs of needing to feel an emotion rather than the late signs where it's already boiling over. And so I really see my job as, uh, as being really caring and gentle with myself and letting myself be more and more sensitive rather than less and less. And so for me, that honestly just looks like taking a lot of time and space. I meditate pretty much every day. And there are many, many, many different ways to meditate. But for me, that mostly is just sitting and asking myself, what do I need to feel right now? <laughs> what do I need to feel that I'm not feeling? And then let something come, come forward. Yeah, uh, I'm happy you brought that up because in the book, you talked about a practice called emotional flossing and how it started yeah. with the emotion of fear as well. And you actually go through these stages 
but it sounds like what you're doing now is that you're just saying, all right, bring it to me. Like what's, <laughs> what's in there? Yeah. The emotional flossing technique was really helpful for me. It still is helpful and I do it sometimes, but it was particularly helpful earlier on when I struggled to even figure out like, what is it that I'm feeling? And when I struggled to deal with certain kinds of emotions that I, that I would tend to repress and still tend to repress, like anger is a really, really hard one for me to dig out of myself and let myself feel. And so especially at the time that I was writing the book and, and the time that the events that the book are about were happening, I was not connected to a lot of those emotions at all. So much so that I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that I was feeling angry. I couldn't tell you what that felt like in my body. I couldn't tell you how I knew when it was coming other than just like, I would get in a fight with a partner and be like, Oh, okay. I guess something is wrong. Right. (laughs) And so emotional flossing helped there, you know, it's this sequence of you, you basically kind of play act feeling fearful and then you play act feeling angry and you play act feeling sad and you just kind of walk yourself through all of the big major emotions. And what that did for me was help me pull up the parts of myself that were feeling those things. And so it helped me identify like, oh, this is what my body goes through when it's feeling afraid this is what anger feels like in my body. And so I started to get a better sense of like, what are those emotional signatures is the phrase that that therapist that taught me emotional uh, flossing would use. Her name is Valerie Rain, by the way. She is amazing. Um, and, And so over time, I could transition away from like trying to put myself through every emotion and check like, am I feeling that thing? And instead just let it be more of an open floor. And what I've discovered post leaning on the emotional flossing piece is that when I just sit and remain open to whatever emotion might come up, there's a lot more complexity that comes to the table, uh, which is really interesting. And I have enough practice now that I can deal with that where I, I wouldn't have been able to sort through any of that complexity when I was just trying to figure out what anger felt like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's so Cool. It was my first thought when you were you're talking about actually acting it out and how like fear would be pulling your shoulders forward. Um, and I was just going, the body is so cool and how you can kind of prompt it with these physical actions mm-hmm. to actually get um, the emotion that is laying there underneath. Super cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I don't know how geeked out you've gotten about, um, like there have been studies that, that literally our body positions are memories of different emotional states that we've gone through. And so, um, what I've discovered in the way that I meditate now is I don't just sit still, which is the way that I was taught to meditate back in like yoga teacher training, you know, you sit, you sit still and you don't move and you try to like subjugate the body. Instead, I start sitting, but I let my body move however it needs to move. And I'll sway and I'll like fall on the floor. I'll push on the floor. I'll like backbend. I'll do whatever it is that my body, however it's trying to move, because it's the actual positions themselves that help bring out different emotional responses in me. And that's really, really helpful. That's super cool. I'm totally going to try that and like lock the door though. 
just so when walks oh, yeah, in, yeah. as I'm going I through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I lock okay. the door. <laughs> And, and do some sort of like sound precautions, you know, like ask people to leave the house or make sure you're in a room that you feel pretty comfortable making noise in. Those, those parts are really, really important because the other thing that your body needs to go through that is trust and disinhibition, right? Like if, if I'm worried about being overheard or if I think I'm going to feel ridiculous trying to push my face into the floor... <laughs> which I have done on more than one occasion, you know, (laughs) then, then my body's not going to be willing to go all the way there and I won't actually get to the emotion that needs to come out. So yeah, having the, the solitude necessary to, to feel like what I need to go through isn't going to affect anybody else right now. That's really important to me. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, as for the, the, other question I had was, you said that you botched that conversation of coming out um, to your mom because you panicked and judged mm-hmm. yourself. What do you think you could have done to help prepare for that conversation better? Oh, oh man, <laughs> so many things. I mean, I think, I think the most basic thing I could have done was reorient myself and my own perspective you know, what I, what I write about in the book is that I came at that conversation with this sense that like what I was about to tell her was something that's weird and abnormal and, you know, like not, not something that she would be able to understand or have compassion for or empathize with. And all those things are wrong, (laughs) Uh, you know, being queer and, and loving more than one person. That's not weird. That's a very human experience. And, um, yeah, it it was almost like that conversation represented my own inner, my own inner biases, my own inner homophobia that I was still working out. And it all came to play when I'm mirroring it against like one of the people in my life that's most important to me to be loved and accepted by. Right. Um, so I think, really anchoring myself more deeply in the idea that sharing that I'm queer with people is, it's, that's a great thing. Like that's me being more authentic. That's me sharing more of myself, being more fully myself. And, um, and that's not a thing to apologize for or think is weird or out of the ordinary. And I just, I didn't, I didn't feel that way about myself in that point in my life when I was talking to my mom. And the other thing that would have really helped was choosing a better environment. I mean, <laughs> in that scene, uh, we were in the car. I was driving. Like, we're both looking straight ahead. We're trapped in a small space. Then there's a time limit. Like, we're going to stop at our house in, in two minutes. Like, this conversation has to be so short. It was just the environment that I chose put so many pressures on both of us. And it, it was really quite ridiculous. But I think I also did that unconsciously on purpose. Like I needed a sense of like a tight container because I was yeah. worried about how intense the conversation was going to be. And I ne- I wanted to just be in and then out. And boy, I got that. But I didn't get the conversation that was really connective for either of us at the time. Man. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> all poured out. And uh, um, I'm, la- I'm laughing because when I read that, um, my 
made me think of my friend who, when he came out of the closet, he decided to do it in the car as well uh, with his mom. Oh, and, that heals my heart so much. Yeah. No, it gets it gets oh, better, Emily. I'm, yeah. It wasn't him that told his mom. He had his friend sit in the car with them, and he had made his friend come out of the closet for him to his mom and tell oh, him as like a translator. Darling. So oh, I was just, wow. What wow. is it? Ab- yeah. What is it about the car that just makes these emotional talks just kind of like a stepping stone? <laughs> to like to have yeah yeah i really think it is the um it's the time limit and the space limit like you know that that conversation literally can't go much farther than a specific distance <laughs> yeah. and yeah. um and that's actually a detriment to conversations like that but Oh, I um, <laughs> tell your friend, thank you for sharing that story or thank you for you sharing that story on behalf of them. I am, I feel seen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. He'll watch this. I'll send this over to him right away. Um, <laughs> how has having difficult conversations with your family members changed the relationships going forward? Oh, made them so much more unexpectedly better. Hmm. I, you know, as evidenced by that conversation with my mom, I focused so much on what the, the bad outcomes could be from those conversations. And my mind just spun it out to like, they won't want to talk to me or they won't want to connect with me. Um, and I never, it had never occurred to me to focus on the great things about those conversations which are how connective they can be. And what's been really beautiful is since publishing this book, uh, I've had really amazing conversations with both of my parents, but even beyond my parents, like my mom has had conversations with some of her friends who have children in like similar, uh, you know, lifestyles that are the alternatives to what, our parents' generation grew up with, which was like, everybody gets married in college. Everybody stays married for the kids. You know, like it was just all this very, it was kind of a single script of how everybody lived their lives. And now the kids in my generation are living lives in very different ways. And a lot of those parents didn't understand their kids, but my mom's been sharing my book and I've heard from more than one person who is like, oh, this helped me understand what my daughter is going through or what my son is going through. And that's just so gratifying. You know, I think focusing more on like, how do these conversations help us open up more curiosity about each other and more understanding for just what it, what it's like to go through all sorts of different life circumstances and share knowledge from the places we've been. Like, that's what I wish that's what I wish I had been better at focusing on before. And that's what I focus on now, maybe as a result of having gone through those, <laughs> those yeah. awkward and painful conversations. Right. Um, but yeah, now it's like, I, there is so much power in having a vulnerable, authentic conversation. And I, I lean into that now where I used to lean away from it before. Yeah. Cause you see the benefit it provides you on the other side of the road. Like it's, yeah. it's just a thorn that needs to be pulled out and it's gonna be a lot better afterwards, right? 
Yeah. So cool. And I think, oof, I think I didn't know how to trust that that would be the case. I didn't know how to trust that relationships could be better after being more authentic. And uh, in my case, I really just had to jump in and start trying for that, even when I didn't think that's how it was going to happen. <laughs> And then you build yeah. trust over time, the more conversations go well and you see how, how it goes, right? But I um, I now realize that when there's something big that I want to talk to someone about and I'm feeling nervous about it, it's probably because there are lots of smaller conversations that I skipped along the way or lots of other ways that I was starting to hide myself long ago. Yeah, and going back to what you're talking about, like um, these things that were seemingly small, um, and that you were desensitized to now you become more and more sensitive to them and you know, okay, if I don't take care of these things right now, it's going to turn up big or we're just going to shut each other out. One of those two options. Yeah. 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 And awesome. in that sense, being sensitive is a superpower, right? Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely useful even in uh, my relationship with my wife, like we're, we've caught on, okay, if these little things like our, if our version of radio, okay, is coming up in our heads and we're ignoring it, like there needs to be a conversation um, and we need to address it right away. So, or sooner, uh, yeah. not if you're out for dinner with friends or something, that'd be bad timing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I go ahead and just say it when I'm out to dinner with I friends. have something to fine. say. <laughs> Yeah. Um, last couple of questions about the book. Every time there's a swear word in your book, it always seems to just pack a punch. When editing other people's work, do you find yourself trying to add in or remove swear words? And do you approach it with more of a feel or is there a system you actually use uh, with allowing swearing? Oh. I would say that I've been governed by my feeling for it, but now this is literally the first time I've considered this question and I actually do have a method now that I think through it, which is that, that I think everybody is going to have a different sort of style that they go for. I think that swearing is very much like a seasoning, right? Like no particular swear word carries additional meaning of its own. It's like using an exclamation point. And so I want every swear word to change the sentence that it's in and not just be there because it's, you know, because we're being lazy or something. And so that's when I'm editing other people's work, that's what I look for is does that swear word actually change the character of what the person is saying? Does it change the impact in the way that it lands? If so, then absolutely it stays. Or if there's a sentence that's falling flat and a swear word could punch it up in the right way, like, yeah, let's let's add it. I'm a big fan of, of swearing, mostly because it's just such authentic language for all of us. We pretend we don't swear in our everyday lives, but we everybody swears like a sailor all the time, or at least all my friends do. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's a way to kind of tap into language that feels uh, more connected to our, our guts and more connected to us being real with each other. And I've also totally worked with people who seem to, sw to swear pretty gratuitously where it's like that word doesn't, it it's actually starts getting in the way if it's not changing 
the impact of your statement. And so I cut those out so that the ones that, that are impactful can be more so and not watered down by the times when the swearing isn't necessary. Yeah. Like you've basically taken the, the filter off the salt shaker and just dumped it onto your food. (laughs) (laughs) It's no longer a seasoning. (laughs) The main show. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was, that was something I was actually really curious about because I, I felt it every single time I read it and I noted it down. Um, so thank you for explaining. That's yeah. Thanks for noticing. I, um, I think I wanted to make sure that each one of my swear words was a punch in the gut and (laughs) appeared at the times when I felt like I was punched in the gut. So yeah, Yeah. I'm glad that that reflection worked out. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, last question. So I, I read at the end of your book that Tucker Max, uh, had actually helped edit your book. And for those who don't know, he's one of the few people to have three books on the New York Times bestseller lists at one time, uh, along with people like Malcolm Gladwell and Brene Brown. Um, what were some of the key takeaways you received from him that you use today or pass on to other writers? Yeah, the biggest thing was that he pointed out all of the places where I was avoiding getting at the heart of the matter. (laughs) And, and for the most part, that was things like, um, I was explaining a lot of the dynamics in my relationships, for example. Like, I think there was one instance where I described that I use this metaphor of like, we'd created a crack in our relationship when we were like walking alongside the crack and like peering into it. And he just flagged this. He was like, what the fuck does this mean? (laughs) Like what, (laughs) what is actually happening in the relationship? right? Like don't use a metaphor to cover over this or distance yourself from it. Show us what this actually looks like. And that was some of the the biggest game changer of how I approached this book period and how I approach writing now. Um, in essence, it boils down to that trope that people always say about show, don't tell. But I think yeah. what helped what helped it really land for me was that I realized that anytime I'm backing away from really showing you what's going on in a scene, in a single moment in my life, it's because I'm afraid of how vulnerable I am in that moment. And I'm trying to put distance between you, the reader and me. And so I really see my job now as closing that distance in every possible place I can think of rather than creating more distance with fancy writing or metaphors or, you know, all the other bullshit that we do to try to sidestep speaking the truth. Super useful and great to hear for my own writing. I'm going to kind of go through with that lens. And it actually kind of reminds me of, uh, I'm sure she won't mind me talking about it, but uh, my wife and I see couples counseling, like on a regular basis, we treat it like taking a car to the mechanic and Mm -hmm. our, uh, therapist has called out something that was so subtle and reminds me of what, what you're talking about. Cause she, you know, she would look to me and go, how do you feel Amir about this? And I'll go, I feel like, and she would go pause. You cannot use the word like you cannot say, I feel like it's, I feel. And that tripped a wire in my head. And she was saying the, even saying just feel like that word like is covering up and distancing yourself from the emotion. Like what the fuck are you actually feeling? And I was like, Oh my God. And just similar to how 
you're talking about the editing in the book, like what's actually happening here. Don't like remove that story out of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> if I could sum up some of the, some of the biggest development that helped me deal with that radio K voice in my head, it was very similar to what you're describing of this transformation between I feel like something and I feel something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like actually getting in direct contact with the thing that you feel is yeah. so powerful. And mm, yeah, I guess I'll stop there. There's so much more I could say, but <laughs> yeah. my brain yeah. is now spinning in like five directions at once. So we'll... Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. We'll, cl we'll, we'll close out the, the, the book chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> And go into uh, college, which is obviously the premise of the show. But I, I'm so like, I had so many questions about your book and uh, obviously geeked out over it. Um, and yeah, so we'll go into uh, the college questions. So starting from early in life, what were the cultural beliefs your family had around college? And how was it talked about within the family while you were growing up? College was definitely considered a given in my family. Um, my parents had both gone to college. They were, you know, part of like the post boomer generation. And so going to college, like that was kind of one of the biggest waves of, of everybody goes to college because there's a really clear correlation between getting in a great career as a result of that. And so it was assumed that my, I have a brother, it was assumed that both of us would have the same, you know, setup, uh, that college was the thing that would help feed us into our careers. And so I never considered not going. <laughs> in fact, I was like, and I did never end, ended up making this happen, but I was trying to figure out like ways to graduate early so I could get to college faster or where's ways to go to like college prep boarding school. I applied to one and almost went, but it was away from home and cost a bunch of money. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, in the end. Um, so yeah, there was this, there was this perception that I had that college was sort of the not just the thing necessary for career, but that it was the phase of life where I got to be an adult and be my own person kind of for the first time. And so I wanted to get there as fast as I could. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So it, it was a given, uh, but what made you want to pick uh, fiction writing as your, as your major? I went back and forth a lot on that. I knew that I would be going into something creative. I also knew that uh, creative careers, uh, like nobody has really a creative career. People are just creators and they figure out how to sell their art generally. Yeah. And so I actually originally was debating when it was time to go to college, I was debating between music, photography, and writing. Um, I at, at one point was actually very close to becoming a French horn music major. I wanted to like play professionally in orchestras. French horn music major. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Applied to Juilliard. And, you know, I had like a whole professional portfolio of recorded pieces that I'd done and, and the whole nine yards. Um, and, and I was on the cusp of accepting going into that when I, uh, realized I actually, I don't like to practice. <laughs> 
I love to perform, but I don't like to practice. And am I really ready to go into a phase of my life where like, that's going to be the thing that I focus on and that I do every day. Um, and so I went into photography instead originally because okay. I wanted to, I was looking at it more as like, what is the thing I want to get better at rather than necessarily the thing that I want to do? Cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then halfway through, um, my photography major, I switched to fiction writing in large part because while I loved photography, I never felt like I got a good vision established for myself. Like I never really knew why I was doing it or why it felt purposeful to me. And when I looked around and compared myself to all of the other students in my class, it was like I could see such clear vision in their work. They all had distinct styles or they were trying to emulate all these beautiful, famous photographers. And I just like never found a style that I gravitated toward. And sadly, I decided that that meant that I was never going to be a great photographer. <laughs> and I gave up on it. Um, and I knew that I was a pretty good writer already. And so I, I transitioned over to the writing program. You know, the, the experience when I was in the photography program that helped me realize that I needed to switch was that I really lost interest in taking photos for fun. Like I was oh. taking photos for my classes. I was fulfilling the assignments, sort of halfway liking what I did, but mostly just feeling really critical of it. And the thing that I found myself doing for fun all the time was writing writing poetry, writing short stories. I was filling, I remember I bought a journal that was like a three inch thick bound book. It was like the thickest journal I had ever seen in a store. And I was like, I'm going to fill that up this year. And I wrote every single day and filled the whole thing up. It was like probably 500 pages or something. And I felt really proud of myself. No, <laughs> no kidding. It, it sounds like uh, Radio K was making an appearance when you're talking mm -hmm. you know, with photography and it sounds like it, it seems like it stopped becoming playful, which is so important for that line yes. of work. Yeah. And yeah. And I realized too, you know, functionally what being a photographer is, is more than taking beautiful images of something like to be a really great photographer. You actually have to be a really great people person. You have to be really great at engaging with the, the people you're taking photos of yeah. or really great at using relationships to leverage the situations you want access to. Like even if you want to be a wildlife photographer, you have to figure out how do I get into rare and wild places? How do I get the help with that, right? And so photography is actually so much more relational than I realized. Uh -huh. And I think that intimidated me a lot particularly when it came to taking pictures of other people. I just felt like I am, I am not ready yet. This feels a little too much outside of my comfort zone, but, uh, writing down my thoughts in my book, like that's, <laughs> that's somewhere where I feel like I can stretch myself on the craft to an appropriate degree. And the challenges that I get while writing things like being in a, a critique workshop and getting feedback, like those are really fun challenges to me. And I didn't shy away from those in the same way that I shied away from getting critiques on my photographs. Yeah. I've never thought about that with photography 
actually, and even videography in how much of it is kind of well, like client facing and how much relationship mm-hmm. interaction there is. And I think about the good photographers that I've um, hired, they've, I will go back to them because of their personalities and how they interacted with us, less so the actual photo shoots. You remember how they made you feel in, in those photo yes. shoots, right? So, and people who make you feel great get better photos of you. Yeah. You know, there's this trick actually that I learned really early on. Um, I was doing a stint of studio photography. And so just trying to get as many people as possible into a studio to take headshots and portraits. And and I ended up tapping into this group of professional older women that I knew and brought this one woman in to take her professional headshots that were going to go on her website. And she was so stiff and her smile was just like really like, it was really strained and the photos that I was getting looked terrible, but I looked at her and I smiled so big and I lied and said, you look gorgeous. And the very next smile that I got from her was the most beautiful thing, lit up the whole room. I took a photo of it. It was awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's, um, I've, I've never appreciated that aspect until now. Um, you, you actually mentioned that with writing, you already figured out like you already knew you were a good writer. Do you remember the first moment where you realized, oh, I have something here. Like I, I have, this is a skill. Mm. I mean, there were really early moments actually from my childhood when I got encouragement for writing. I uh, was in writing competitions as a young kid. I, I don't remember the details, but I won some state like children's lit competition for a book that I wrote. It was probably like 20 pages long, very short. Um, you know, so, so there was already in my growing up, there was this sense of like, this is something that I'm doing that keeps getting reinforced and I keep getting praise for. And that was really helpful. Like my dad would always tell me, you're so good with words. You're, you're, you got some million dollar words in you. You're going to make a million dollars off of your words someday. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. That's, that would be amazing. Um, it wasn't really though until, um, it actually wasn't until the job I have now at Scribe as a ghostwriter, when I started really feeling like, I have a true skill that, that is, um, what am I trying to say? Cause I don't want it to be a comparative. I don't want to make it sound like I'm better than other people, but it's like, I know now that I have a skill that other people have not practiced honing and that I have a skill that I can lend to other people who don't, who have a gap there. Um, and I see that so much more clearly now working directly with clients and getting just constant feedback on my work has helped so much with getting a sense of accomplishment and like actually knowing that I'm on the mark, making an impact. Absolutely. And I've experienced that when I was part of the scribe workshops and you reviewed some of my writing and your ability to look at just a multiple page document of my outline and you, I, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, but it, I wrote down the exact paragraph that you had just blurted out like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is your premise. And you just did it so off the hip. And I was just like, wait, can you say that again? <laughs> and like typing it all out. And 
uh, what I caught on was that you really did have this distinguished lens that was microscopic as like, what are you really trying to say? And here's the mm -hmm. best way to say it. And the, the, how quickly you did it was amazing to me. So, um, and it's, Thank you. yeah, it, it's an amazing talent. It sounds like it was forged early in childhood, even with like a positive reinforcement from the parents, um, that can really help shape things. Yeah. I mean, I think with writing particularly too, um, back when I was an English teacher, high school English teacher, I, I realized for the first time watching students struggle to, to write well is that what they perceived that they were doing was learning how to write better sentences. And they would get so frustrated about like, how do I do this better? I don't understand the grammar very well. There's all these rules and I keep breaking them and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I realized, no, they're, the, what, what I need to teach them to do is not to become better writers. Mm -hmm. They need to understand that writing is just communication. Writing is just one particular form of connection. And as soon as I started teaching from that place of, I'm not teaching you to write better sentences, I'm teaching you to communicate and connect with the person reading this thing. <laughs> Once we got there, it was like, so many puzzle pieces clicked into place. People had, students had so much more confidence because they know what they want to say. They just feel like they're saying it wrong when a teacher critiques their grammar or whatever. And when we let go of the grammar rules and just, you know, we focused on them only to help hone what they were doing. But when we really focused on just how can we communicate this better, we were able to tap into the mission behind what it is people want. And that that's how I can now look at a two-page document or a 20-page document of somebody's random thoughts and say, no, I can tell what you're trying to say here. <laughs> like, this is your book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's uh, It reminds me, that was one of the biggest take takeaways from that scribe workshop was um, instead of just writing, write to somebody. Like, who is it really? Yes. Like, visualize them and Yes. in a way that they can understand or for a smart 12 year old, keep it simple. And well, when it comes to careers in the arts, I was thinking about this as I was thinking about how I wanted to talk to you about like my own career trajectory in college and all of that. The biggest shift that has happened for me is going from what do I want to say or create to thinking about instead how do I want to serve other people? Hmm. I had never thought about a career in the arts as being a service to other people. I mean, I knew of course that art makes the world beautiful and yada, yada, and it's very valuable for those reasons, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of, no, each individual thing that I create has somebody who's going to appreciate that or somebody who wants that in their lives and why do they want it? And the more clear I can get on that why and focus on how the thing that I'm going to create is going to serve their why for listening or reading or whatever the case may be, I can create so, such bet more successful art from that place. And absolutely. And it gets you out of your own head as well, which mm -hmm. yeah. you, you brought up how you're a, an English teacher and that's actually, that's definitely an act of service to the youth as well. Um, how long did you do that for? And was it like you went, like how long of a gap between college and 
be becoming an English teacher, was there? Yeah, I, let's see. Um, I graduated college in 2007. I became a teacher in 2014. Yeah, 2014, so seven years. Um, and in the interim, so I graduated from a fiction writing program, not an education program. So okay. in many states, I'm not qualified to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, many states require master's programs. But in Arizona, we have a charter school system. So um, charter schools can decide to take what they call highly qualified teachers. So those are people who may not have backgrounds in education, but they do have real world experience in the fields that they're teaching. So in my case, after graduating college, I had a bunch of random jobs that uh, honestly were not at all related to my degree or what I wanted to do. They were just the things I did to make money. Like I was a house painter and a personal assistant for a doctor and um, a personal assistant for a graphic designer. And then I worked at Trader Joe's and then I worked at an REI's <laughs> kind of gear shop. It was just all over the place, like all these random low paying jobs, um, not to knock them. They were all really important for my livelihood. But, mm -hmm. um, but during all that time, what I was really doing was using those jobs to fund what I really wanted to be doing, which was freelance writing. And so I was writing magazine articles on the side and pitching all sorts of places and trying to, um, trying to sell stories and get my legs under me as a writer. And I was never able to make the transition into a full-time freelance writer, which is what a lot of writers do to make a career out of that. I just didn't ever get enough, um, relationships with magazines to make a living off of the money of the stories that I sold. But that experience then set me up to be a highly qualified teacher in English because I had been writing magazine, doing magazine work for seven years at that point. And so I got the, the teaching gig and I did really love it. Um, I think the, I lasted in that job for three years. And the reason that I left was because I, I realized that I don't feel very energized in group settings mm. every single day. Um, and so I was just, I felt so connected to purpose in that career, but I just felt drained every single day and I couldn't figure out how to kind of replenish my energy and replenish my cup. And so it was a thing that I, my heart is still very like committed to teaching. I still identify as a teacher. I use my role now uh, to teach authors, but it's not in a classroom setting. And that fits me a lot better just in terms of um, how I like to operate. I'm not a big group dynamics person. <laughs> it's funny just drawing the parallels there with uh, you realizing that early on with photography. It's just like I can deal mm -hmm. with some group interaction or in-person interaction, but you definitely need, sounds like you need a hybrid of that kind of closed space, deep work and yeah. interacting with people. Yeah, for me, for sure. I would consider myself a bit more of an introvert. So I need a, I need a, a lot of solitude and alone time to balance out yeah. the time that I spend in larger groups to feel good. And it, I think so often of like, all of the different career shifts that I've made, 
have helped me hone in like what it is that I want. And now I'm totally in my dream career and it's really awesome. Um, but it was really hard in all of those shifts because in each job I had, it was like a big piece of it was stuff that I really wanted. Like teaching teens is so much fun, so gratifying. <laughs> Love the the personal relationships I had with my students. And I loved like the one-on-one -on -one tutoring component of that. Um, and so to be able to parse that out and say, yeah, I love that part, but like leading a classroom is, is not the kind of challenge that I want to be taking on. And it's okay to let go of the part I love because the part that I don't love is dragging me down more than is really sustainable for me. Um, for me, making those decisions is really hard and yeah. it takes kind of a leap of faith to believe that there is something that will capture both the parts that you love and be the right level of the kind of challenge that you want to take on. Absolutely. And it's, it sounds like it's something, it's almost similar to like feeling your feelings. You just need to go do these things to figure out what you mm -hmm. like and what you don't like and to actually feel what it's like to, um, you know, be a doctor's uh, assistant or to teach a, teach high school students and say, oh, I love the one-on-one -on -one tutoring component of it. But I've sat in on my, um, friend's class once who needs a high school teacher. And I was like, I couldn't do this every day, every day, like eight hours a day. Like this is a lot. And this is a lot of personalities to manage. So, um, it is. Yeah. yeah. And one-on-one -on -one, that, that is really fun to do one-on-one -on -one, that just feels like relationship building, but yeah. in a whole classroom, you're managing all of the different personalities all at once alongside of all of their own internal dynamics of like, who's friends with who and who's on the outs with who, and who just dated somebody, but broke up. And like, yeah. you're just like trying to <laughs> you can't help, but like, <laughs> then what happened? Like, Oh, I, should, this is, well, I shouldn't get engulfed and, in this. <laughs> Yeah, it affects how they show up in class, right? Like it 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 affects people based on what's been going on in their lives, um, yeah. what they're going to be ready to learn that day. And so um, balancing all of that in a group was just a little too much for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are the three things that you believe college should provide to its students? Oh, man. That's a really hard question. I, can I approach it instead from the three things that I would have benefited most from in a college um, atmosphere? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's easier for me to answer that on a personal level than dictate it by like what I think the whole system should do. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But on a personal level, I would say the biggest thing that I got specifically because I was always interested in an arts career. So you know, that's always going to be about creating work and, and trying to refine it. So for me, the, um, the workshop communities that I was part of were a big deal. Being able to walk into a room with fellow students that were aligned on becoming better artists and, uh, that were trained well in how to give quality feedback to each other and, having professors that were willing to have not necessarily personal relationships, but like willing to invest personally in, in their students' success. Um, 
those elements were all really, really important to me. And those are the things that I got the most out of. Like I hands down grew immensely as a writer while in the writing program that I was in. And not everybody does when they go to a writing program. I think that that was a really specific benefit of the the people that were in my classes and the teachers that were leading those classes. So that's one thing. I think that a second thing that I wish I'd gotten more of in college was prep for what potential careers would look like in my field. I mean, as an artist, especially, there are, I now know, there are so many different ways to manage an artistic career. Some of it could be creating your own art and then figuring out the journey of how to own a business around creating your art and selling it. Some of it could be getting a career that does some element of your art, like how I'm a ghostwriter now and and a book coach now. You know, that's I'm producing my own personal work on the side, but uh, getting my bread and butter with work that's of, of service in a different capacity. And these are all things that I learned after college, um, like learning how the publishing field works and how literary fields work and how magazine work and freelance work, like all of that is stuff that I learned after college. And I felt like I was at a little bit of a disservice getting out of college without that knowledge. Cause it was like, I hit a job market that just didn't even exist. You know, yeah. it's not like there are companies out there hiring for a writer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I <laughs> like, yeah, that just doesn't, that's not really a thing. Um, and I didn't really know what avenues to start pursuing to be able to write for money and had to, had to really spend a lot of time getting in a lot of different circles, meeting a lot of different people to find more opportunities than, um, than what I thought were out there. So I think that colleges should do a a bit more and some of them do, but I think art schools in particular should do a bit more to really help set up like what's the business side of the field that you're going into and how do you make sure that you can get that to support yourself because it turns out nobody's going to knock on your door and just hand you a job in the thing you just got a degree in. And even though I knew that that was the case, I still totally expected that when I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to push that off when it's like a few years away. That's um, mm-hmm. well, That was going to be my, my follow-up question to that is how could colleges do this? And I, I like the idea of what you brought up with the charter school program. Like they might not be qualified, but this person has made it work in the real world. Why not have them come mm-hmm. in and teach a class on what they did? Is there anything else that you can think about that would yeah. be helpful? Well, I, I did get a little bit of that in the program that I was in, in that there was one class. Um, it was, uh, what was it? Yeah, it was a prose. It was called prose forms. And the, the focus of the class was actually to learn different styles of writing. And mm-hmm. so we studied everything from like passages of the Bible to legal documents to like great literary works in all sorts of different styles. And the goal was to figure out like, how do we become as writers, how do we become chameleons and Mm -hmm. figure out what are the rules of all of these different types of writing and how do we follow them? And that was one of the biggest things that set me up to be 
Like that was the class that gave me the most marketable skills of all the skills that I had coming out of college because it was like, okay, I can at least envision if I don't know how I'm going to write my first novel, and I know that that's a couple of years away anyway, um, how can I imagine lending my skills to all these different fields? Well, all I have to do is study, like, how do they communicate within those fields and where do I fit within that? Um, and as part of that course, they had a couple of different people who had graduated from that program come in and talk about the different careers that they had created um, post, you know, with their writing degrees post-college. But it was only a couple of examples. I would have really appreciated seeing a much, much broader scope of like, what does this whole industry look like? And leave with skills like knowing how do you write a book proposal? What happens inside the publishing industry? What happens inside of the magazine industry? How do editors select things? How do you become an editor, right? Yeah. Like I just, I didn't know any of those things leaving college. And um, and it would have been cool to have just a, a class or, or something dedicated entirely on what what is in this field for you to explore and how do you do that? Interesting. Yeah, that would be super valuable um, to have if college wasn't an option at all for you and you had to go work on those things. Like I think I got down just learning how to create work and refine work, the relationships and the mentorships and preparing for potential careers. How would you go about that in your college years? If college wasn't an option and you had to pick an alternative. Mm. I mean, I, I think I think I kind of did that in my post-college years um, in that I wandered into jobs that I was interested in just because I wanted to learn more, not because I necessarily wanted a career in that job. Like that was how I became a personal assistant for that doctor because the doctor was like, she, well, she was a, a psychotherapist. And so I got to like help write up her notes and get insight into like, what is it that a psychotherapist does? Um, and so you know, it was just like I, I became really good at putting myself in the environment that I wanted to continue learning in. And I think that, that that's probably the best way to start figuring out what the real world <laughs> of, of your own potential career can look like. And then being willing to, to let go of that and do something new when you realize that that environment isn't giving you what you want to be learning anymore. And I think learning when to call it and, and say, I'm done here is a hard hard piece of that. Exactly. Yeah. And those are the years to really go and do that when you don't have like your responsibilities at that point for not everybody, obviously, but are usually minimal compared to what they will be 10 years from now. So, um, yeah. And at least for me, I was so much more willing in my, uh, late teens and early twenties to live on a shoestring budget. Like I was so, I was plenty comfortable being really broke. And that yeah. made it, uh, that made it easier for me to take risks that, um, I might not feel as comfortable taking now that I know what kind of salary I like to live on, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, actually, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, cause people are always asking questions about whether people, um, took on student debt. Did you take on, like, how did you finance college for yourself? I did. I am really, really lucky in that my parents paid for most of it. Okay. I took on one student loan and the sum total of that was $10,000. Okay. So 
Um, it wasn't nothing, but it was that's a that was a pretty easy chunk of debt to handle. I think I paid like 120 bucks a month for 10 years, <laughs> and then and, and then it was done. Um, so I I felt really really grateful to my parents for helping my keep my debt so low uh, because I think if if I hadn't had them to help me out with that, I'm not sure I would have chosen to go to college. Um, I think the investment, especially in art school, when there was no clear path of like, how am I going to get a enough salary to pay off that in any reasonable amount of time? Like, I, I don't know that I would have been able to figure out a clear plan that felt good to me for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, it's funny. I hear this, this happened to me and I hear it happening to a lot of my friends that went through it as well. Um, where, my parents paid for my first year of college as well. And I did not take it seriously at all um, until mm. it was my own money. Did you feel like once you were actually taking out a loan and it was money that you were going to have to pay back that you started to take it more seriously? Or was it just, were, did you have that realization at a young age and go, oh, I should be really grateful right now. I'm actually going to lock down and get my work done. I... You know, it's funny. I don't even think I necessarily thought of it in terms of, um, uh, like I've always been a, a pretty responsible person. And I was certainly of all of my friends that were in art school with me, I was the only person who was like waking up at 8am for class every day of the week, you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I was just really driven and I was really excited by what I was learning. I think I, it, it was more like I was intrinsically motivated by um, how much I wanted to create in those communities that it, it actually didn't like, I didn't mess around. Yeah. <laughs> I was there to, I was there to work and I was there to learn. And it always felt like that to me. Um, yeah. So when I think about the money piece of it, it's more like, it's more that I'm really grateful. The debt was so low because it yeah. gave me so much more freedom to play the field with different kinds of jobs. You know, if I had had monthly payments on debt that that were hundreds of dollars yeah. every month, I would have had to go into a completely different set of careers to try to fund that. And who knows how, who knows if I would have actually gotten to where I want to go because I, I, it took a lot of risk and a lot of willingness to work for really low pay for a long time to do that. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. a really good point that I'm, I'm really glad you highlighted is that um, be conscious of the amount of debt that you're taking on. It's not to say all student debt is bad, but how long is this going to take me to pay off? And am I going to be anchored into mm -hmm. crazy high interest payments for like the next 15 to 20 years? Um, yeah. I, I guess it's kind of like taking out a loan for a car, right? Like if you need a car to get somewhere, okay, but you don't need the fanciest car or know what you're getting mm -hmm. into with compound interest and how long that can take to pay off. Um, and just thinking through like, what does that mean for the flexibility of your life choices over the next span of time that you're going to carry that debt? You know, I have friends, for example, multiple friends who are doctors who had a hundred thousand and up of student loan debt when they graduated. And two of these people specifically had crises kind of midway through each of their respective programs. Cause they were like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a doctor anymore. 
I like, I want to experiment with something else, but literally there's no other career that I could change to right now that I could get a job in first year out of college and, and meet the monthly payments that I have to make. Um, now the, the happy story is that both of these doctors are really settled and happy with their careers today. So it's not like they stayed forever in that place of, of resentment, of resentment, but it really did create like some deeply trapped feelings for, for a while that then they had to work through and figure out what they were going to do about that. Interesting. And, uh, you don't have to name names, but do you know why they got into that career? Like, did they actually want to be a doctor initially, or is it more something that their parents oh, yeah. suggested? Yeah, no. Uh, in each of the cases of these friends, they were all driven at first to be doctors okay. and then kind of got, um, like, I don't know if you have any friends who've gone through medical school, but medical school and residency is just a nightmare. And yeah. they've even changed, they've changed laws somewhat recently to limit the amount of hours that a resident doctor can work. But it used to be that there were no limits. And so people were pulling like 18 hour shifts and then sleeping for three hours and then going back to another 18 hour shift. Like some of my friends were going through that and just thinking, screw this life. Like how, yeah. when am I ever going to live or sleep? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've, I've heard horror yeah. stories about that and the, yeah, there is no balance <laughs> in, in work life mm -hmm. balance there. I think though, you know, it also is, I think it's sort of a high pressure environment by design so that by the time you're out and a full doc, like you can make clear decisions under stressors like that. You know, it's probably kind of similar to military boot camp training. Yeah. Like how weak, <laughs> like you've sense. been through the worst yeah. of it and you know, in a sense that you can get through it. Like you, you can deal with that dark mm -hmm. space in your head when you're there. Yeah. Um, Which is so valuable. Like those friends are some of the coolest, most collected people that I have in my life. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. These mundane problems are nothing <laughs> to them because they've been through yeah. it all. <laughs> Certainly gives a sense of scale. Yeah. Yeah. What was the number one portable skill that you got from college? And by portable, I mean a skill you developed during college that you were able to apply to uh, things further down the road in life. Yeah. I mean, in my case, with my focus being on writing, the biggest skill was learning how to be a chameleon as a writer is that, that prose forms class that I referenced earlier. Um, okay. because then like, that's not just about writing. That's like that class taught me how to go into any, uh, like looking at any job description that I wanted and recognizing, okay, this is what this group of people and this mm -hmm. environment expects, and this is how they communicate. And I just got to like match that <laughs> chameleon myself into that. If this is the place that I want to go next to learn and explore. Um, and so I've been a couple of my friends have actually pointed out that like, I am the queen of applying to stuff that I'm not qualified for. <laughs> And, and getting it, not because I, I ever lie or like, or, um, like I don't ever say stuff that isn't true, but I do know very deeply how to connect with where people want me to be and then mold to that. Um, 
which has its downsides because you have to retain your own sense of authenticity yeah. too. It's a <laughs> but, careful balance. Um, but I, I think that in a in a career sense, like that's been one of the biggest skills is just being able to really, really deeply understand what it is that people need and communicate really well around that. Uh, I know who I'm reaching out to next time I apply for a job. <laughs> um, if you had parents that were trying to force you to pick a path in college that you didn't want to, but you, you would feel a sense of shame or disappointment if you didn't go, how would you proceed with that? You know, I did have sort of a mild version of that, which was that uh, my parents, my dad in particular, like really looked at the arts field and knew flat out, like it's going to be, you're going to have to find a way to create a career for yourself here because this isn't just a place you can slot yourself into a job that already exists. And my dad was encouraging me to be a lawyer instead. He was like, you're a great writer. You're a great actress. And being a lawyer is really just <laughs> like reading a lot, yeah. writing legal, legal briefs, and then performing in a courtroom. Like you would rock all of those things. And I was like, you're, maybe you're right, but I, but I know that that will kill my soul. Like mm. I know that that is that is not the kind of content that I can stay interested in over the long term. And he and I had actually some really big conversations about that. Um, I don't think that it was ever going to be a case of him denying paying for whatever college I chose. I think that that was always a given. Um, and he was always supportive in that sense. But it was there was sort of like a little bit of a heart to heart of me trying to help explain to him like why it was that I wasn't going to pick something more practical <laughs> when I agreed with him that like that would have been the um the financially easier decision to make but I knew deeply inside of myself the emotional cost that that was going to have if I chose a job that I already knew I wasn't going to be thrilled about and if I went into learning environments like law school that I already knew weren't going to light me up. Um, and so I just had like really frank and clear conversations about my emotions around that, honestly. Um, and I think it did help him see that at least I was committed to the path that I was taking and neither of us knew where it was going to take me, but that I knew that it was right for my heart. And I'm lucky that I lived with a parent that's swayed by that kind of argument. <laughs> um, but yeah, we ended up, you know, he, he ended up very, very supportive of my writing career in the end and kept saying that line of like how I was going to write the million dollar words someday. Like, I think he still, I think he still believes that and has, has that faith in me. That that's awesome. I, I love that you actually had a conversation uh, with him because the, the more I talk about the concept of this podcast and then the future book um it i talked to a lot of friends who have are still maybe even going to college later and after a, a few drinks you find out like why they're going and they're just kind of like i don't know it's just my parents kind of want me to go and and then you mm -hmm. find out they haven't had a discussion about it and even drawing lines back to yeah. you talking about 
not having the discussion with your parents about um, being queer, like it just acts as a block to so many other conversations down the road because you're just kind of putting it away. And um, so it, it makes me so happy to hear yeah, that you actually have totally a conversation. Right. Yeah. 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 And it was an important one for us to have. I think if we hadn't had that conversation, I don't know. I, I might've, I might've been swayed actually. If, if we hadn't have had that conversation, I might've had more doubt about myself in choosing not to go with a more quote unquote practical career and, um, and might've bailed to law school <laughs> instead of something else, you know, but because we had had that conversation and because I knew that my dad supported me in that choice, yeah. it was easier to stick with that choice instead of bail anytime that my own conviction started to lighten. Yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise if you didn't hear what your father's views were on the point uh, on, on all of this, and I feel like radio K would have been speaking for him in your head. Uh, yes. And, yes. And, yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> and it, you're just making assumptions at that mm -hmm. point. And, um, I think you mentioned it in, when you reviewed my writing in the past, you're like, we're dealing with long withstanding programming of our brains and how they react to our primary caregivers. So it's really important that we get on the same page at the very least, because it will influence your decisions. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's not even necessarily that important that you get on the same page. I think getting on the same page happens over time. Hmm. The more of those conversations you're willing to have, you know, like looping this back to what we were talking about earlier with me coming out to my mom that conversation didn't go well. And then we didn't talk about it for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> and then wow. our next yeah. conversation, I finally did. Yeah. Right. Like think about that. And our next conversation, I finally did feel like, okay, I can see that not talking about this is causing me to not show up fully in my relationship with my mom. And I just finally called her up one day and started talking to her about how I'd been feeling since that conversation and it turned out she'd been feeling terribly about that conversation too. Like we both had in the meantime seen the ways that we botched that conversation and didn't hold care for each other. And we both apologized to each other and like got a new, got a new ground set for ourselves. So, so I think it can be easy to, to say, oh, it's important to have those tough conversations assuming that all those conversations are going to go well. And sometimes they just don't, but you open the door for them to go well someday, as long as you're willing to really check in with yourself and speak with what's real and true for you. And then, then you have that platform to revisit and build on in later conversations to eventually get on the same page or eventually get the support that you're seeking. And it won't ever happen if you don't start the conversation. Exactly. At a certain point, you just got to rip off that bandaid, you know, whether it's pretty or not, just do it. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're, if you're scared about it, uh, maybe just start it in the car. Cause that seems to be the biggest stepping stone here. If we've learned anything. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, start it in the car, knowing that you can pick it up later after you bomb that first one. You yeah. might as well get the the worst the worst version of that conversation out of the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and don't don't start it with this is oh, going to be so a great. weird conversation. <laughs> <laughs> How you preface it matters. Uh huh. Especially when it comes to things like talking about career in college. Yeah. Uh, just to close out the, the, the college chapter, what's your favorite uh, memory of college? What was the best part for you? Hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to think of my favorite academic memory, but the favorite memories that are swirling through my head are the community of friends that I built while in college. And um, the thing that was so amazing about all of them was that we were all creators. We were all creating different stuff. Like I had a couple friends who were filmmakers and some who were visual artists and others who were writers and some who were photographers. But it was like our friendships had that shared uh drive to just be making stuff and playing and slapping creative ideas at the wall and laughing about what didn't work out. And, and it just, it really set the tone for what creating in general would feel like for me later on down the line was having those friendships to be creating within. Yeah. Awesome. And like, you're all in that same, most of you, I'm sure like, um, colleges for all ages, but you're at that same point in your life as well, uh, where everyone's just kind of vibing off of each other. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the creative aspect, you can feed off of that and draw principles and lessons laterally from those relationships. But it, it was one of the first things you brought up about like the, the things you were happy with, with college was the relationships and the mentorships as well. Um, yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. So, well, we'll close that chapter out for college. Thank you. And I'm going to go to the part I'm actually most excited about, to be perfectly honest. It's just my random questions. So, um, lovely. You ready? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> what makes you cringe more? One, a room that has only overhead lighting. Two, <laughs> Playing catch with a toddler using a lacrosse ball in Italy. <laughs> a room with overhead lighting, for sure. And uh, I can say that with confidence because I have been hit in the eye with a lacrosse ball by a toddler. <laughs> and got a big shiner right before a trip to Italy. So it's like, did you know that somehow? <laughs> <laughs> so not, ma not many people are willing to go to the second page of Google, but I found like this old <laughs> nice. blog of yours from like 2012, I think. I don't know. But yeah, you talked about, I didn't know that was before you went to Italy. I thought it was when you were in Italy. It was, it was right before it was like literally the day before the flight. And, uh, to give just a little bit of backstory, I had been invited to do this uh, really amazing bike tour with a group. Um, I was going as a journalist. The guy who owned the company wanted me to basically write like a promotional piece on them. And so he had invited me on this luxury tour with a bunch of really fancy, rich adult couples. And we were like riding on these, like the 
the bikes had been released that year. They were all like carbon fiber, light as feathers, crazy expensive bikes. Um, and we were just touring around Italy and staying in these luxury accommodations. Like as 20 year old me, who's living on a shoestring budget, because I'm trying to like figure out how to make a writing career happen. This was the most, uh, the, it was like the biggest gift I'd ever been given was to be treated like a professional in this space. And here I am on the flight with a black eye from a freaking lacrosse ball that a toddler had just thrown in my face the day before. And I was like sitting on the plane, like massaging it with my fingers. Somebody had told me that to get rid of a bruise, you have to press it harder than the force that made the bruise. And so I'm sitting there just like mashing my eye with my hand as hard as I can. And I, uh, I actually arrived in Italy with just like a tiny little uh, purple line under my eye. I did get rid of most of the bruises. Oh, that's good to know. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I got to talk yeah, to you about- Yeah, just rub it really hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to talk to you about overhead lighting because there's a couple times in your book where you mentioned like how like you walk into the therapist's office and it had lamp lighting, but not overhead lighting. And I'm one, I'm, I laughed because Miranda, my wife will like, if there is no need for overhead lighting, she'll like, like turn it off like aggressively because she can't stand it. And I won't notice <laughs> anything. So what is it about overhead lighting for you? <laughs> um, you know, actually from my photo days, I think I do know the answer because we had these exercises in the studio class where we would position the light in different places and take portraits to get a sense of how does that change the emotional tone of the portrait and overhead lighting almost always what it does is it like it makes the underneath your cheeks sallow out it makes your eyes go really dark cuz your eyebrows are creating shade it just makes people's faces look a lot more dull and uninviting than they really are. Um, and so like it really does give me anxiety to be in like target (laughs) or, or like actually at my school where I taught, it was all fluorescent overhead lighting. And it really does. I think it's, um, it's not as easy to connect in those kinds of conditions because they feel so sterile and so like, not a place where humans are supposed to build relationships um, to give a very long answer to what is ultimately just an intuitive thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never thought about that with the <laughs> overhead lighting. I remember the one time I realized it was when I actually had a concussion and I went shopping in Costco and it just like, I had to ditch my shopping cart and get out of there because it was the overhead fluorescent lighting that was yeah. killing me. Outdoor lighting didn't bother me. It was just, being in Costco is like, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I just, I, mm-hmm. I, yeah. There is, I think there is some study of like the, the frequency because fluorescent lighting is not static. It's actually a pulse and it has a frequency. Um, Our eyes can't see that. Um, but I think there is some study about like the frequency of fluorescent lighting specifically actually does mess with people's brains and perceptions. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so post-concussion, I could see being more sensitive to that for sure. There's like two or three tags in here that are just like hashtag overhead lighting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very annoyed by it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Next random question. Have you uh, met David Goggins at work? I have not. Okay. No, many of my colleagues have, uh, but I've not worked directly on his book and I'm not based in Austin. So I haven't been there when he's visited, but of course he's a, he's a very, very big deal for us. It's all very exciting. Well, I was going to ask if he was as intense in person as he is on his Instagram page. My understanding is yes. Um, our, uh, <laughs> the person who project managed his book, uh, my colleague Ellie, yeah. he nicknamed her the militant motherfucker <laughs> because she did such a great job just getting shit done all the time on his book. So, you know, when you're going to nickname somebody something like that, I have, a, I have a hunch that you're just as intense in person as you seem to be. <laughs> um. Next, uh, you've met, it's okay if you can't think of something on the spot, but uh, you've mentioned that you went to the internet and searched, my boyfriend likes someone else. What do I do? What other things have you Googled in hindsight that make you laugh? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, every once in a while, when I Google something really weird, I'm like, I hope that somebody doesn't ask me about my Google history someday. <laughs> Um, because you know, the internet can give you some really crummy answer answers, but every once in a while it gives you a really great answer. So I've Googled things like, uh, how do I know if I want kids, (laughs) which is ridiculous because who on earth could possibly answer that for me, but it get, it did lead me to some really great blogs of other, other people and resources that are like, um, therapeutic resources on making those decisions. So like that was a, that was a high quality Google search there. Um, and then I'm always Googling random things like, could I possibly be dying of X disease because my hip hurts? I mean, like I do that sort of thing all the time. If people aren't guilty of this, they're lying. I'm con- like, <laughs> we all do. It. <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, I'm constantly every, like, I don't know, every 20 minutes, I think that I'm going to die of something. <laughs> it's one of the voices. There's like Radio K and then there's like Death just Girl <laughs> in my head. They're just having at it. <laughs> the, the, you've, you've actually mentioned, um, I forget where I heard you say this, but you mentioned that Anytime the brain speaks in absolutes, it's typically lying to you. Can you elaborate on that a little more and give mm-hmm. an example? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I can't take credit for that thought, although I don't remember who originally taught me that. I wish I could because it's one of the most valuable lessons ever. Yeah. Um I know that the, whoever taught it to me was a psychologist of some kind, because it was under the context of like, this is how you know that you're not dealing in reality because nothing is ever always some particular way or never some particular way. So anytime that your brain is using those words, it's dealing with a curated version of reality for sure. And getting conscious of that and starting to ask myself, okay, if I take for, for granted that never is not an option, (laughs) like what is the more complex experience that's happening here? Right? Like if I think that I'm always angry at, I don't know, my partner for doing something, I'm probably not always angry about that. And 
so what's what's the complexity that will help me tease out like why is this specific thing coming up now? And I think connected to that advice, the thing I do now is figuring out, okay, if if the absolute statement isn't coming from the reality that's in front of me, when is it coming from? Like when in my life did I feel that this was the case? Because that's probably the key to how I'm feeling right now. Mm. Like to give a concrete example of this, I remember there was, there was a time when I was moving a plant in my house and, um, I had picked up, I, th- I think I just pick up, picked up the pot, but not the drip tray oh, or no. something. And the drip tray was clay. And I was trying to get my partner to help me out with it. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but he told me to grab onto something else. And I misheard him or wasn't thinking. And I grabbed onto a different part. The drip tray drops on the, the floor and shatters. And the thought that runs through my head is, I am so fucking stupid. I always do things like this, right? Obviously, I don't always make stupid mistakes. And so then the question was, when was it that I felt stupid in this particular way? And I remembered like times when I felt really embarrassed about getting things wrong in front of my dad and having him correct me or something, you know, something like that. And so I'm realizing like, oh, my psyche is dragging this past moment of hurt into this present moment and then just projecting it onto my partner. And none of this has anything to do with the broken drip tray on the floor, which is actually very easy to clean up, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so so asking myself when the thing happened, yeah, it becomes the it becomes the first clue to helping me figure out like what am I bringing into this interaction? It's such a valuable lesson. And that was another example of, things where I was just like, Oh no, I do that all the time. No, no, here we go. That's going to unravel things, but thank you. (laughs) Nonetheless. Um, last question. Yeah. (laughs) What advice do you give to writers, but simultaneously find it hard to follow through with yourself? Oh, Hmm. I mean the p yeah this would be it the piece of uh of advice that I'm always saying which I know you have heard me say a bunch of times is to stop thinking about what you want to say and think about what your audience needs from you hmm. and that gets me all the time I think particularly as a memoir writer is like the answer to that is often so sneaky because usually the thing that I want to do is to hide, but what my audience needs from me is to not hide (laughs) and to say whatever is the like embarrassing thing to say, whatever is the shameful thing to say, whatever is the thing that's hard to admit to. And so I get tripped up on that all the time because I, yeah, I, I struggle to give, people what they're really here for. (laughs) I I struggle to think outside of of myself sometimes and outside of how I'm trying to protect myself. Yeah. Yeah. I will will say hearing you talk about that is actually helpful for, uh, was very helpful in the, the workshop as well. And hearing you talk about how it was a struggle for you because it validated, oh, it's okay that this is hard and that this isn't something that comes easy. Um, Mm -hmm. so thank you for sharing that. Yeah and sharing your story with the world. Um, uh, Again, uh, I'll pull up the the notes. Please Make Me Love Me, an incredible book. You can find it on Amazon (laughs) and Kindle, and it'll be um, 
in my show notes as well. Uh, Emily, thank you so much. What's keeping you busy now and how do people find you? Yeah, I am busy coaching people on their books and writing a second memoir. Um, People can find me on my website, emilygindelsberger.com, which if you misspell, it's okay. You'll still get there. Uh, and you can also find the professional work that I do at scribemedia.com. Uh, that's where all of my all of the book coaching that we do lives, and I'm really proud of the work that we do there. Awesome. Again, thank you so much. I love this. Love catching up, and you're incredibly talented and a great human. And thanks again for being on the show. And hope everyone here has a fantastic Thank day. Thank you.